Hi, I'm Vishen Lakiani, founder of Mind Valley, the school for human transformation. You're listening to the Mind Valley podcast, where we'll be bringing you the greatest teachers and thought leaders on the planet to discuss the world's most powerful ideas in personal growth for mind, body, spirit, and work. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Mind Valley podcast. I'm with a really remarkable woman. Her name is Sharon Salzberg, and if that name sounds familiar, it's because you've probably read some of her books. Real Happiness, Real Love, Loving Kindness, The Revolutionary Art of Happiness, and A Heart as Wide as the World. Now, from the titles of those books, you can tell that this is a woman with an incredibly massive heart. So Sharon has spoken and thought at a variety of events and conferences worldwide on Everything from meditation to mindfulness to loving kindness meditation. She's a remarkable speaker, a remarkable writer, and one of the pioneers of the Western world's oldest and most respected meditation retreat centers. So, Sharon, it is so great to have you on the Mind Valley podcast. Well, thank you so much. Really, it's a delight. Now, one of the things you said, Sharon, in your book, Real Happiness, which I read many years ago, that beautiful red book, was this. Real happiness, according to you, is the ability to self-generate a sense of stability and presence and love and find the source of happiness not dependent on conditions. A happiness, you said, too dependent upon external factors leaves us devastated when it goes away. Now, I'd love to pick this up as a topic because it's so fascinating. Happiness is such a fascinating topic, but you combine it. You don't just preach happiness. You give people a tool to auto-generate it. Let's talk about that. Well, I think that's really the crucial thing. In fact, when that book first came out uh, with that title, I got into some trouble as I was touring around because so many people equate happiness with something superficial, like being happy-go-lucky and conflict-avoidant and refusing to look at pain. And of course, in those states, our world gets smaller and smaller and smaller. And our ability to have a sense of inner resource kind of shrinks, you know, so that we don't know how to meet adversity that well. We don't know how to meet loss that well. Even neutral experiences, something not very stimulating or exciting doesn't feel very alive to us. And so there needs to be a real experience, real is the word, there needs to be a real experience of something within that is flourishing, that can meet what is happening, no matter what it is. And you've been teaching a variety of different meditation styles. So I know your emphasis is on Vipassana, insight meditation, and metta, loving kindness methods. Would you tell us about that difference? What's the difference between Vipassana and metta? Within the most common Buddhist frameworks, which is where those techniques kind of grew and originated and were preserved, these days, of course, they're practiced in a completely secular fashion without being tied to any particular belief system, which I think is correct. You know, I think that's the right thing. But the whole approach of mindfulness, which is the engine of Vipassana or insight, mindfulness is like the active ingredient, is that we can come close to our experience, whatever it is, physical experience, emotional experience, internal, external, and we can discern the difference between what's actually going on and what we might be adding to it by force of habit. So a common example would be if we feel physical discomfort, or heartache, or disappointment, mostly very quickly we add a projection into the future, like, what's it going to feel like tomorrow? What's it going to feel like next week? So not only do we have the actual experience, we have now a future that we have carved out as though we knew. 
and it's usually pretty bad. You're absolutely right. That's such an insightful way of actually talking about it. You know, so what we're trying to do is obviously not dismantle the ability of the mind to create that narrative, but we want to know the difference. This is our actual experience. This is what's being superimposed on top of it. And that's why they say mindfulness leads to insight or wisdom. You know, so all of those practices, and there are many, many ways of practicing mindfulness, of course, are about that. Ultimately, they're really about insight. These days, as the popularization of mindfulness has grown, mostly people think of it as something to help us inhabit our lives, you know, to really taste that tea because we're not multitasking. Perhaps we're drinking the tea only. And it's a beautiful thing to inhabit our lives, to live our lives, to be in touch. But classically, those techniques weren't designed just to help us inhabit our lives, they were to understand our lives, because we have a much cleaner, clearer view of all these things, all the things we've been taught. You know, does vengefulness really make us that happy? Let's look, you know. Where is strength? Does love make us that stupid and weak? Let's look. So that's that whole class of meditations that rest on largely mindfulness as a developing quality. The whole class of meditations that rest largely on loving kindness or compassion as a developing quality are a little different. They're designed differently. I call them the stretch. You know, it's like realizing your mind is accustomed to practicing awareness of a certain kind. And you're just going to stretch and see what other ways there are. Is loving kindness meditation about stretching your compassion, your kindness beyond yourself? Even including yourself is a beyond for most of us. It's beyond the norm, whatever our norm is. An example would be like if you are in the habit of assessing yourself at the end of the day so that you're kind of evaluating how I do today. If you are in the habit of pretty well only remembering the mistakes you made and what you could have done better and how you failed, you stretch and you include, well, what's the good within me? And I'm excited that you're going to be leading us on a short meditation journey and loving kindness meditation. Now, when you meditate daily, what do you do? What is your daily meditation practice like? You know, I've been practicing since 1971, you know, so I've gone through many different phases. And these days when I sit each day, that formal or dedicated kind of period, it is a mindfulness sit. I practice a pretty open awareness of whatever comes up. And I also have a commitment, a resolve to practice loving kindness whenever I'm waiting. And I count every mode of transportation as waiting, like every airplane, walking down the streets of New York, which is where I am right now. Now, that's so interesting. That's so interesting. What does that look like? How do you meditate when you're waiting to catch an Uber or a plane? Well, there are lots of ways of doing it, of course. And so you find the way that works for you. When I was taught loving kindness meditation as an intensive sitting technique, it included a walking meditation. And it rests on the silent repetition of certain phrases. So you're not particularly trying to be aware of your breath or sensations in your body, but it's like a generosity meditation. You're offering, you're giving. As you look at somebody, you know, the ticket clerk, you're thinking, may you be happy, may you be peaceful, or whatever phrases work for you. And so walking down the street, you could just be walking, and then as someone catches your attention, you hear a bird you hear a dog, you see a person, just include them. Or you might be walking down the street offering loving kindness to yourself. May I be happy, be peaceful. Be happy, be peaceful. And then when someone 
catches your attention, you make that offering to them. I see. So that's beautiful. And for the Mind Valley audience listening, many of you are familiar with the six phase meditation, which I invented. Phase one is actually loving kindness meditation. It's rooted in that. So now you understand where that came from. Sharon, you also studied Vipassana. Now, I've not done Vipassana, but a lot of the people at Mind Valley, at our company, go on Vipassana retreats. Our former CEO just got back from a retreat. And, you know, and he was telling me that at Vipassana, they tell you that you need to meditate an hour in the morning and an hour at night. What are your thoughts on that? Doesn't that seem a rather difficult thing to do for the average person living in the Western world? I think it's very difficult. I'm going Kaji was my first teacher. That was January of 1971 in India. He had just left Burma. So Vipassana, which means insight, but the word Vipassana seems most closely associated with his lineage of insight. But there are many ways of practicing Vipassana. You know, he did make that point. And in a way, it was very interesting because he was a layman and he was not a monastic. And he was talking about an hour in the morning and an hour in the evening, in contrast almost to a lifetime or a a more reclusive monastic life. And so he was saying, you don't have to spend your life removed from ordinary concerns. You know, he was a businessman, he had five children, but he said, you do have to practice every day. So instead of thinking, well, I've got to do, you know, six months of retreat this year, you're thinking about twice a day. You know, so that was sort of interesting in itself in terms of the sociology of it. And I think it's very hard. Neuroscience will say, in terms of the kinds of brain changes they are finding, through meditation, you know, the kinds that we want. Um, somebody recently said to me in a kind of teasing way, because what they had found like two years ago was that only nine minutes of mindfulness a day and seven minutes of loving kindness a day will actually change your brain. But it needs to be every day. Phenomenal and very doable. That's 16 minutes a day. Now, can you take us through that process? What would that nine minutes of mindfulness meditation do? I'd love for us to understand it so the people listening on this podcast can stop this. Well, usually the foundational exercise is based on trying to deepen some concentration because most of us experience ourselves as pretty scattered, maybe not in every arena of life, but somewhere, you know, like you sit down even just to think something through and you're gone. They say our minds tend to dwell in the past, not in a useful way, but in a kind of useless way, often with something we now regret, and we just go over and over and over and over it, not for lessons learned or figuring out how to make amends. We're just going over it and over and over it. So it's a huge energy drain. And or usually and our minds jump to the future, and we create a scenario that has not happened. It may never happen, and we're filled with anxiety about that, you know, and so... What we try to do in the beginning is like capture some of that energy and just bring it together. So usually people choose an object. Most commonly, that doesn't have to be. Most commonly, it's the feeling of the breath. As Goenka, he would say, as my first teacher, two things. One is you don't have to believe anything in order to feel your breath. So you don't have to call yourself a Buddhist or Hindu or reject anything else. If you're breathing, you can be meditating. And then he went on to say the breath is very portable. You know, So if you spend, say, 20 minutes a day practicing in the morning, say, you know, one sitting and you're using the breath as the anchor for your attention, then you're at work and an argument is starting somewhere and you're getting very anxious and you don't have to open up the closet door and pull out all this equipment. It's like you're breathing. Nobody even has to know you're doing it. And so it's a perfectly private resource. So you settle your attention on that object. Let's say it's the breath. 
And usually it's not long before your mind wanders, you know, 10 seconds maybe, you know. And then there's an art there of learning how to let go more gracefully and just return with more kindness towards yourself. And you let go and you return and you let go and you return. And then with some amount, it doesn't have to be a huge amount, but some amount of stability in awareness, we open up the field of attention. Maybe you pay attention to what's happening predominantly in your body. And again, it's with that eye toward seeing the difference between what's actually happening and everything we make of it. Maybe it's a strong emotion that's coming up. And so that's what we're paying attention to. And we keep coming back to the breath just to kind of recalibrate. Oh, this is what it feels like to observe without getting over-involved. That seems simple enough, but I think in practice, it's a lot more challenging than that because thoughts are going to come in. And that's one of the biggest challenges people have with meditation. So when a thought does come in, a worry, a fear, just a nagging thought, right? I'm hungry. I need to pee. What do we do with that? What would be your advice? Well, if you really need to get to the bathroom, I'd get to the bathroom. <laughs> Let's be real. But I think this is a very, very important point because many people feel they failed because they still have thoughts. And it's we would never say you could fail anyway. You know, you can't fail at this. And the point is not to wipe out thoughts. The point is to have a different relationship to the thoughts. So you can have a barrage of tempestuous, nasty thoughts. And it might be very good sitting because you're not taking them to heart and you're not building a whole self-image around them. That's the key. You're not fighting the thoughts. You're observing them, right? That's right. Okay. And it almost feels like you have a second voice in your head. I call it the two-mind effect. One mind is observing the thought in a secondary mind. Is that how you would describe it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is a great way of describing it. So that's fantastic. So nine minutes of mindfulness. And then you said seven minutes of loving kindness. Walk us through that. What would that process look like? With loving kindness practice, rather than rest the attention on the feeling of the breath, we choose certain phrases. And it's just maybe three, four phrases at most. The idea is that we're going to use these phrases as an offering to ourselves and to others. So they need to be very broad. You know, it can't be, may I get to the airport on time tomorrow? You know, it has to be, may I be happy, may I be peaceful, something like that. We don't want to constantly having to be thinking about new phrases with people. And we start with ourselves. And just for a few minutes, just repeat over and over again, whatever those phrases are. And then there are a variety of different categories of relationships that we use, those we feel close to, those we hardly know. Often somebody who maybe plays a certain role in our lives that we see them now and then, but we're kind of neutral about them, like a clerk in the supermarket we tend to shop at or, you know, something like that. And that's a very interesting category because over time, what happens is not learning anything new about the person and not being sort of dramatically involved with them. You actually get a kind of feeling of caring just because you're paying attention to them. You're wishing them well. And we offer loving kindness even to those we don't like that we feel uneasy with. And then we end with all beings everywhere. So that's a lot to do in anyone sitting at home. So usually we say the bookends are starting with yourself, ending with all beings. Maybe you have time for one other. Maybe you have a friend who's having surgery today, so you want to include them, or a friend whose daughter's graduating from high school, so you want to include them. Depends on how long you're going to be there practicing for. But those are the basic bookends, starting with yourself and ending with everybody. So you would start with yourself. You might then include your family, your coworkers, your friends, the people in your city, 
people in your country, the entire world. And in between, you could also pass this loving kindness, compassion to a particular person who was ill, the checkout lady at the grocery store who smiles at you every day. But when you are sending this compassion to them, what is that mental dialogue? What is that mental model that you're putting out? Well, it's the willingness to pay attention differently, which is what we're doing with the phrases. First of all, to actually pay attention. You know, if you think about how many conversations are we in where we're not really listening, you know, we're thinking about the email that we need to send or something. So there's not really a sense of connection. But here, too, we're gathering all our attention and all our energy, but not around the breath, around the phrases. And it's a kind of interested attention in wishing well. You know, like, think about that person in the supermarket, the checkout person, and how often we look through them instead of look at them. You know, we objectify people, we discount people. You know, we have obviously certainly a sense of tribalism, you know, you're in and you're out. And so just the very fact that we're now gathering our attention and looking at them and wishing them well is a sort of radical act. And then the people we've categorized, you know, like, well, you know, I heard you're really boring, so I won't even listen or, you know. What is the phrase that we are saying to them mentally? You know, it depends on which phrases work for you or seem right to you. It could be may you be happy, may you be peaceful, may you find wisdom in your life, may you live to your greatest potential, whatever it is, you know. It just needs to be very broad so that it can be inclusive. And it's often may you, may you, right? Yeah. That confuses a lot of people. Like people say to me often, well who am I asking? And I say, Well you're not asking anybody anything. You're giving. So it's like you hand someone a birthday card. You say, may you have a happy birthday. May you have a great year. So I know research in meditation is growing at an astonishing rate. In Daniel Goleman's latest book, Alter Traits, he talks about the exponential curve of meditation research. It does everything right now from heal your skin to improve heart health to cure backache. Now, in terms of loving kindness meditation, I'm just curious, is there any science or data that shows that it makes you a kinder, gentler person? In other words, like, is there any data that shows that it actually shifts in some way, not just yourself, but the person you are sending that energy to? That's a really fascinating question. And often we've talked about things like that. Like, how do you study that? Richie Davidson, who is his co-author in Altered Traits, the massive amount of interest in the beginning was in mindfulness. And partly that was because of John Kevinson's genius and making a formula. It's like he made a package out of MBSR, which meant it was very easy to do research on because everyone was doing the same thing and the same order the same sequence. And these days, the field of compassion, say, research is really growing. Everything from Tanya Singer saying sees different areas of the brain for empathy and compassion, and they're considered two different qualities. I helped him work on a curriculum with four and five-year-olds for loving-kindness training, and he got fantastic results. That curriculum is now up on his website didn't used to be because they were doing the research and now it's done. So it's available for anybody. And do you think it causes a permanent state shift in people? Do you think it actually creates not just a feeling of compassion today, but it actually has a stacking effect and over time gives you a bigger heart? Oh, yeah, definitely. But, you know, that's not to say anyone is perfect at it. And so I'm a great believer in daily practice. Like if they say it takes about a month to really instantiate these traits, it doesn't take that long, you know, if we're not continually practicing. But it's not so hard. It's like what feels natural 
really shifts. And what feels in harmony really shifts. And what I find fascinating about that is that I really think this is where we're going as a species. We're becoming a more interconnected species. Charles Darwin in 1872 wrote about a concept called diffusion of sympathy. And he spoke about how in the future, mankind would start to diffuse their sympathy to mankind across all artificial barriers. He actually used that word referring to borders, nations, religions. And he went on to say to all sentient beings. And I find that interesting. Darwin didn't just talk about where we came from. He talked about where we're going. And loving kindness meditation seems to be, at least from what we know, a tool to get us there. The other fascinating study is from William Broad, San Antonio Mind Science Center. He would divide hundreds of people into senders and receivers. Now, this one is bizarre, Sharon. And the receivers were hooked up to 19 different neurological machines that measured everything from galvanic skin response to brain activity. And at specific times, like 1.53, the sender had to give positive thoughts to the receiver, right? No difference from loving-kindness meditation. And at precisely those moments, these 19 different machines monitoring subtle forms of biofeedback would show a difference. For example, the person might become more relaxed in their brainwave or true as measured by skin resistance. But it was a fascinating study and he repeated this with hundreds of people. That's the one study I know that blows my mind. But it does seem that our thoughts do influence the biology of other people in a deep, profound way. You know, we have often had that conversation more in a joking fashion. In fact, Richie Davidson would say he has some story like what's difficult about what I'm about to describe is having somebody who is objectively known as being kind or compassionate, you know, but he chose Matthew Ricard, who's a Frenchman who has become a Tibetan Buddhist monk and is an extraordinarily lovely person. He wrote like one of the world's biggest books on altruism, you know, and then he had to write a second book about altruism toward animals because it wasn't even enough, but he's a wonderful person. So he joked, but he did it. He brought Matthew into a university situation and, they did a kind of survey, like, who's the most disagreeable person who works at this university? And everyone agreed who it was. And they asked that person to come into the lab to be wired up while he was having a conversation with Matthew. But apparently that person was so disagreeable he wouldn't do it. So they got the second most disagreeable person. And they did just that. And as he was just having a conversation with Matthew and sort of being in his aura, you know, his presence, he was getting calmer and he was, you know, showing a lot of change, but there are a lot of difficulties with that research design. So It's crazy, right? So I just did a wild experiment where I worked with a very famous Chinese healer, a grandmaster, one of only 10 people in the world who have this ability. He's worked on people like the late President George H. Bush, and he came highly recommended. And he brought me into his center in L.A., and did this type of healing work on me. And one of the results that he said was going to happen is that I would end up being even kinder and gentler to everyone, and other people would connect with me very deeply. It was bizarre, but the very next day, people who were just people I work with, whom I've been working with for like years, right? People I just met, things were different, right? They were actually responding to me in a different way. And I just wanted to keep hugging everyone. It was the most <laughs> embarrassing thing. Now, I don't know what happened, but the thing is, it's now been two weeks and that shift has stayed with me. I've not gotten upset, not felt stress. I've just been like all love for like two weeks. I'm wondering, does this end? Like what's going to happen if I take a glass of wine? Is this going to dispel this magic? It's freaking me out. 
But it's fascinating. So before I ask you to lead us into a short loving kindness meditation for about five or seven minutes, I want to ask you one final question. What do you think of meditation apps? There are so many, it's almost becoming overwhelming. There are some apps that give you like 15,000 meditations. And I'm guilty of that as well. My app, Ombana, was one of the very first meditation app. It has like 16,000 combinations. Do these apps really help? And feel free to disagree knowing that I've built some of these apps. Well, I'm on some apps too, so I think they're wonderful. You know, I went to India when I was 18 years old through college, through university, so I had scholarship money, you know, to send me there. I grew up in New York City. I'd never even been to California when I went to India. Not everyone could do that, you know, but I was propelled by a great deal of personal suffering, and I was determined to learn how to meditate, and it was not here. It just wasn't available, and I'm always touched by the people who can't leave home even they're taking care of an elderly parent or a child or you know they just don't have the circumstance to wander around and certainly the more available these techniques are i think the better off we all are my concern is usually is there some way to ask questions because just the thing we were talking about earlier about people's assumption that their meditation is bad if they have thoughts it's such a common assumption and needs to be challenged a great deal, not just once, you know. So is there a way for this person to get that kind of feedback? Like, you don't really have to worry because you had 70,000 thoughts when you were sitting. It's okay. How were you with the thoughts? Did you have that kind of witnessing capacity or were you lost in them or were you fighting them? And so I don't know, you know, the various apps and how often they allow for that kind of thing. No, that's true. Most of these apps don't because it's not a very scalable solution to be able to ask questions. But there are some ideas out there that we are playing with. Now, another question I wanted to ask you is, have you ever looked at group meditation? Lynn Twist released a book called The Power of Eight. She's a British journalist who was investigating meditation. And she spoke about fascinating studies that show that groups of people, particularly a group of eight, coming together in Skype to send loving kindness or an intention-based meditation can often create in some way, and this is super hard to validate with science, right? But she suggests that they can create healings. They can create a massive state shift in someone. Group meditation with a joint intention. Have you ever encountered anything of this sort? Or what are your beliefs on this? I don't know. I haven't personally encountered it, although I certainly look for the book. But my feeling about loving kindness meditation is that it's like gift giving. Like anytime we are generous or we make an offering, we can't actually count on how it will be received. That we as the person offering need to have a certain level of equanimity or balance about that fact that we're not in control. You know, you may offer someone a carefully thought out gift. Of course, if it's a healing circle, the person presumably wants it. You know, they're yearning for that kind of energy and be able to receive it. But you actually don't know, you know, and so there needs to be some wisdom there so that you don't feel that you failed. You know, the person didn't get well or that, you know, Therefore, my loving kindness was no good. So if it's held in that broadest context of this is our job, so to speak, is to make the offering. And there's also kind of letting go because you just don't know what other circumstances or conditions are involved in the reception of it. Right, right. For sure. For sure. But it's a fascinating thing to think about groups of people coming together. So thank you for joining us on our Mind Valley podcast, Sharon. And for those of you who want to check out Sharon's work, Google her on Amazon. She has some amazing books out. The one that I finished reading is called Real Happiness, The Power of Meditation, a 28-day program. 
Thank you, Sharon. Thank you so much. Lakiani, and this is the Mind Valley Podcast. If you like the Mind Valley Podcast, take the next step. Become a Mind Valley member. Imagine being coached daily by the greatest teachers on the planet. How quickly would you transform your health, your mindset, your body? your relationships? How quickly would you double the size of your company? How quickly would you see your career grow? How quickly would you eliminate any limiting belief that's holding you back and manifest a life that you once thought beyond your dreams? When you become a member, you don't just get access to the greatest education in the world. You become part of a community of 150,000 of the most incredible people dedicated to personal growth. Go to mindvalley.com forward slash now to get started.